0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Okay, hey, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another wonderful week of The Power of the Parsha. This week is Parsha's Vayetze. Before we get started, I want to thank you for coming out here and being here. Whether you're live, whether you're <laughs> we're all live, hopefully. <laughs> whether you're live in person, whether you're on Zoom, or whether you're watching this later on Torah Anytime or any other uh, format or listening to it, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're learning. I'm glad you're listening. I also want to thank the amazing staff of Yeshiva the Yoram Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful lunch. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. It's filled with amazing Torah content that will blow your mind and make you much wiser and indeed a better human being. So I want to thank them as well. Um, I also want to point out that my brother uh, set me up with a podcast. So you can find me now. Anywhere you find podcasts, that's right, you can find me on Spotify, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, you can find me on the Google Play Store, all under the name Jewish Living with Burnham. Again, Jewish living with Burnham. I happen to really like some of the podcast platforms in terms of their ability to speed it up, slow it down. Very easy to kind of subscribe so you can subscribe and I'll upload my classes on Thursday. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get down to this week's Torah portion, Parshas Vayetse. Now there are two major stories in this week's Torah portion that get not very little press time, zero press time. They only get hinted to, alluded to, but not at all directly discussed. Even though, interestingly, fascinatingly, they are both tremendous stories very important in the lives of our forefathers. What am I talking about? Source number one, Genesis twenty-eight nine. Okay, this is last week's Torah portion. This is the last verse in last week's Torah portion. It's talking about how Esau, seeing that his father and mother were not happy with the Canaanite women, and he saw that his parents had told Yaakov, go find yourself a, a nice woman from our family, don't go with the Canaanite women. So Esav decides not to divorce his Canaanite wives, but to find another wife who was non-Canaanite. And the Pusuk is, let's see, again, it is Chav Pusuk Pasuk Tes, the last pusuk in Last week's Torah portion, Bayelich Asaf al yishmael and Asa went to Yishmael, who was not from the Canaanite nations. Ba Yikachas Machalas, Bas Yeshmael, Ben Avram, Machos, Novayos, Al-Nashav, Loli And he took for himself uh, Machalas, the daughter of Yeshmael, the son of Avraham, the sister of Nevios in addition to his wives as a wife. So he takes on an additional wife. Now Rashi says, Why does the Torah need to tell you that it was the sister of Nevios Just say. He took a daughter of Yishmael. We know that Yishmael's son's name was Nevios, and therefore by telling you that he married Yishmael's daughter, obviously he married sister. Nevayos' sister. Nevios was there at the wedding and he was wearing the corsage. So you know he's from the family of the bride, right? You know, so you know he was a brother. So what is going on? Why do you need to tell us that? So Rashi goes into a very complicated uh, calculation. A very, very complicated calculation. But at the end of the calculation, one of the things that it teaches us is that there's 14 years missing in Yaakov's life. And it teaches us, and here's what Rashi says, V'lamad numikan, we learn from here, Shenitman Bebase aver yud shana, that Yaakov, while running away from his brother who wanted to kill him, right, he, Asav wanted to kill Yaakov, because he felt like Yaakov stole the blessings. So Asav wanted to kill Yaakov, so what did Yaakov do? Yaakov ran away, but on the way, after leaving his parents' home, before going to the house of Lavan, the Aram, the Arami, the Aramean, he went and spent 14 years. the We learn from here, from this whole calculation of figuring out Yishmal and Nevayos and, and, and Machalas, the whole calculation of when Esav got married, you figure out that there's missing years, but Lamanu Mikan, Shenitman Bebeis Aver that Yaakov went and just stuck himself, hid himself, for 14 years in the house, in the yeshiva of Aver, and Eber, and only after that did he go to Charon. We do see one more hint to this, by the way. So it's not the only time there's a hint to this. There's one more hint to this later in the Torah. Where is that? Genesis 28.11. Again, it's not in the Torah. This whole story that Yaakov spends 14 years of his life, about one-tenth of his life, Yaakov spends learning in yeshiva in the middle of running away. After he left his home and he's on the run, he's on the lamb, but he stops and he spends 14 years studying in yeshiva. It never gets mentioned at all in the Torah. Only we learn about it in the Rashi by the fact that the Torah tells us that Machalas was the sister of Nevayos. You can make a whole calculation. There's one other hint to it in the Torah. It says that as Yaakov, in this week's parsha, Yaakov is, is running away, Vayifka Bamakom Sham, and he reached the spot, which was the spot? It was the spot that was the Har HaMoriya, Mount Moriah, upon which Avraham sacrificed Yitzchak, upon which later on the the base of would be built, and upon which, unfortunately, in our great sins, later on, the mosque, the dome of the mosque would be built, on that holy, holy, holy spot, the most holy spot in Jewish religion, which is somehow covered in a mosque today, and people don't find that strange, that the number one most holy spot in all of Judaism is covered in a mosque in the country of Israel, but whatever, we're not going to get into that, So Yaakov reaches that place, and he sleeps there, for the sun had set, and he took from the stones of the place, and he puts them around his head, and he slept in that place. Says Rashi, you're telling us that he took stones and he laid down, and you're telling us that he uh, wakes up the next morning, he has a whole dream with a ladder going up to heaven and the angels going up and down the ladder. Why do you got to say, and he slept in that place? Just say. He got to the place and he took from the stones of the place and he laid down. By and he put down. And Vayushkov and he slept. Bayolan and he slept and he saw a dream. What do you say? And he laid down in that place. Just say, he laid down and he had a dream. Right? Says Rashi, something amazing. It says Rashi. It says He laid down in that place. Lashon Miut that place is exclusionary because it, it excludes the other places, right? When you say, meet me in the square, I mean meet me in the square. Not at your house, right? Anytime you, you specify a place, you're excluding other places. bamakom, and he lay down in that place, it's an exclusionary phrase, to tell you in that place he lay down. Shashimes, aver lo for the fourteen years that he was learning in the yeshiva of aver he did not lay down shaya osik Torah, he was learning torah which means that for fourteen years ladies and gentlemen when he was learning torah he never went back to the dorm to lie down he sat in his spot when he felt exhausted he put down his head. When he felt enough unexhausted, he picked up his head and continued learning. Unabated. Uninterrupted. Did not even go to the dorm. So now that's the other, only other hint that we have to these 14 years. We have two hints to the 14 years that Yaakov went to Yeshiva while running away from Asa who wanted to kill him. And nothing, the Torah doesn't say a word about it. We only learn about it through exegesis, right? You guys know what exegesis is? Or you know what Jews for... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) A guy I know used to go... I saw him running, he was was jogging, and he had a, a shirt that said, Jews for exegesis. So exegesis means the way we derive things, the way we learn things out from the Torah. Okay, so exegesis. Okay? So there are ways that we can learn out what was going on over here, but it's not directly described. It's not directly described. So, why is that? Why is this 14-year period that is some of the most important formative years of Yaakov's life, one of our forefathers' lives, it's more than one-tenth of his overall, it's one-tenth of his lifetime, and yet we don't have any record of it, only hints, very, very bare, small little hints to it. That's story number one. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. There's another big story that happens in Yaakov's life. And it's also not described explicitly. It's only hinted to. Where is that? Let's go to Genesis 29, 11. The verse there is describing Yaakov's first encounter with Rachel, his later wife. He meets her at the water. He sees incredible, spe- special things about her. And he decides that he wants to marry her. The verse says there, let me quickly make a bracha, thanking God for Coke Zero. <laughs> okay. So, the verse says the following. VaYishak Yaakov leRachel, and Yaakov kisses Rachel. VaYisa eskolo and he lifted up his voice and he cried. Why did he cry? Why did he cry? So Rashi says, they, you know, they say the reason why they cried. Yeah, okay, fine. Rashi says two reasons. The first reason is L'fisha Tzafa Baruch HaKodesh She'ena Nichneses Imo Likvura. He saw with a divine premonition that he would not be buried with Rachel. Indeed, Rachel dies on the way to Beis Lachem, and they bury her, where? At Cave of Rachel. So it happens to be that while they were traveling, they came up to a place that was called Cave of Rachel, and then she died? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she said, "I'm sorry, honey. This is where you get off the train." <laughs> She's on the way to Beis Lachem and she dies, and they bury her in the place that we now know as Cave of Rachel, as the tomb of Rachel. But of course, Yaakov was not buried there. Yaakov was buried in the Ma'aras Hamachpelah, in the Cave of the Patriarchs, with Leah. He saw with a premonition, a divine premonition, that he was not going to be buried with Rachel, and that's why he cried. He had such an incredible close feeling to her already when he first met her, but he knew that he was eventually not going to end up lying with her for eternity in, in, in the cave of the patriarchs, and that caused him pain. That's opinion, That's first explanation in Rashi. Dover Acher, another explanation Lefi Sheba Be'adayim Re'kanios. He came to Rachel empty-handed. Now remember, Yaakov was from a very wealthy family, right? Avram Avinu was already very, very, very wealthy. Not only that, though, he had a... So the, the the Torah describes... Not the Gemara. The Torah describes that Avram Avinu had lots of cattle, an enormous household, a lot of success... And then it says that Yitzchak went down by Yizroh Yitzchak by Ahu, and Yitzchak planted in that land, and Hashem gave him a hundredfold. So Yitzchak had prodigious success. Yaakov was already third generation wealth. But he's coming to get married, and he's got nothing to offer. You know, diamonds are Forever. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yeah. Right? And Yaakov do not have no diamonds. But Yishak Yaakov kisses Rachel. But Yisak's kolo, he cried because every kiss starts with K. K's jewelers. You know what I'm about? <laughs> <laughs> There's that commercial. Every kiss starts with K's. K's jewelers. And he didn't have a diamond. He had a kiss, but he didn't have a diamond. Right, so Yaakov is crying because he came empty handed. Amari said, Eliezer, eved Avi Abba, my grandfather's servant. Right, Eliezer, who came on behalf of Avra, my grandfather. Hayubiyadav Nizamim, Utsamidim, Umigdanos. Eliezer, my, my, fa- my grandfather's servant, came with with nose rings, and, and bracelets, and camels loaded with all kinds of fine wines and delicacies. I've got nothing. Now why did he have nothing? He came from a super wealthy family. They sent him off to go get married. They should have given him something. Right? You, you expect him to go find a shidduch and he's not going to have anything to offer her? Not even a diamond ring? How's that going to work out? What are you expecting? So the answer is no, of course they sent him with incredible wealth. However, Lafisha <laughs> Rodaf, Eliphaz, Ben Asab, Ben Mitzvah, Aviv, Achrov, Lahargo. Asab had a son named, named Eliphaz. When Yaakov was running away, Asab says to his son Eliphaz, You go catch up with Uncle Yaakov. You go catch Uncle Jake and you kill him. He stole my blessings. He stole your inheritance, Eliphaz. You go catch Yaakov and you kill him. Be sigo. And Eliphaz reaches Yaakov. And he says, I'm sorry, uncle. i got, I got to kill you. And Yaakov's like, are you sure? He's like, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Yaakov's like, you're going to kill me? What did, I, what did I ever do to you? And Aleph was like, Uncle Jake, please don't make this harder than it has to be. I, I got to do this. My father asked me to kill you. What, do you. what do you want me to do? My father told me that I must kill you. And you know, in my family, in the family of Esau, we're very big on kibbutz aim. We're very big in honoring our parents' wishes. I got to kill you. But on the other hand, Yaakov's like, Look, you grew up in the house of Yitzhak. You grew up around your grandfather. How could you murder me? Alifa says, I, I hear you, you're right. I, I don't want to kill you, Uncle Jake. I really Trust me. This is harder for you than it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't want to kill you. But, on one hand, I'm the grandson of Yitzhak, I don't want to kill you. On the other hand, I'm the son of Asav, I have to kill you. What, what should I do? So Yaakov says, look, I have an idea for you. Chazal tell us, the sages tell us, That an ani is chashuv kemes, A poor person is comparable to a dead person. We're going to get into that in a moment. We're going to unpack that. Okay? A poor person is comparable to a dead person. So here's what you do. You take everything I've got. Take everything that I've got. And then I'll be a super poor person. So it's like you killed me. You can go back to your father and say, I killed Jake. I killed Uncle Yaakov. And you won't have killed me. Like, you don't really want to kill me. So Liefar says, you know, that's not a bad idea, uncle. And Yaakov gives him everything. That's why later Yaakov will say, I came over this river on my way out of Israel with nothing but a walking stick. I had nothing. And now I've got two full camps of people. Yaakov comes in to meet Rachel (coughs) With nothing. Why? Because Aleph has hunted him down. Now, for all of you who are wondering, what does that mean when you say a poor person is comparable to a dead person? So I'll explain to you what that means. In Judaism, we believe that the purpose of life is to imitatio dei, which is Latin. Now, the purpose of life is not to speak Latin and be snobbish. <laughs> <laughs> the purpose of life is to imitate the divine. Imitatio Dei means to imitate the divine, to be like God. Rabbi Elio Dessler, who we'll hear about later today, in an amazing story, tells us in the Kuntras HaChesed, his special pamphlet on kindness, that our job in life is to go from being a baby who's totally self-absorbed a baby doesn't care about anybody's feelings, anybody's needs. It wakes up in the middle of the night, Wah! screaming and yelling. Poor mom, she just needs a few hours. Can you be a little sensitive? Don't you realize your mom, is just, she's running here on fumes? You're sacking all of her strength from her? The baby don't care. It's totally self-absorbed. And indeed, that's what a baby is. A baby is self-absorbed. That's okay. That's normal. That's what a baby should be. But the goal is that over the course of your life, you take the slider and you start inching it from self absorbed to totally self giving, to total giving, from being a taker to being a giver, right? So you've got this little knob. And in life, as you go through life, that knob goes back and forth. Sometimes you're a taker, sometimes you're more of a giver. But the goal is to go from being a total taker, which is a baby. A baby always, always is taking to being godlike. God is always giving. God has no needs. God doesn't need anything. Therefore, God is always giving. The goal of life is to go from being a taker, a baby, to being a giver, godlike. The more in life that you are a giver, the closer you are to God. The more that you're a taker, the closer you are to a baby. Okay, now. When a person is poor, they don't have the ability to give. Now, of course, there's many ways that a poor person can give. A poor person can give their ear and be a listening ear to people. A poor person can give of their time to donate it to a, you know, an organization and help out. There's a lot of things that a poor person could do. And indeed, that's why the sages tell us, Ain ani el poverty is a mindset. When you decide that you have nothing, you have nothing. But if you decide, I've got lots to give, then you're not poor. A poor person is like a dead person because they have nothing to give. But you decide if you're rich or poor. You decide if you have what to give or not. If you say, I have nothing, I can't give anything, I've got nothing and I can't give anything, then you are poor. There are people who say that when they have millions of dollars in the bank account. I can't give anything. I don't have enough. Those people are poor. Poor multimillionaires. And on the other, on the other hand, you've got people who are, have nothing in their bank account, but they're so rich, because they're constantly just giving and giving and giving of themselves. They're so rich. They're giving. Only someone who's poor, who feels that they can't give anything, they're like a dead person. The purpose of life is giving. If you can't give, then you're like you're dead. Okay, back to our story of Yaakov. So Yaakov left the house with great wealth on his way to go find himself an amazing wife. And then he gets hunted down by Eliphaz, son of Esav, who steals everything from him. And there's not a word about it in the Torah. We just, again, we learn it through exegesis. We learn it from the words that says that Yaakov cried. Why did he cry? Because he lost everything. Why are there no mention of these two fundamental stories in Yaakov's life? You with me? Let's talk crypto. And just like that, I lost the whole crowd. (laughs) Let's talk crypto because right now crypto is in such a state of disarray. And because right now, I'm sure you've all heard of this guy named Sam Bankman-Fried. You guys heard about Sam Bankman-Fried? Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar Sam Bankman-Fried, who just walked off with $10 billion worth of customers' funds. Unfortunately, not the first famous Yid to have done something. Now, I always say, by the way, you want to know if you should invest with people, look at their names. You got made off. What happened to your money? You kept giving oh, he made off with my money. You didn't see that coming? Really? Really? Oh, what happened with your money? I don't know. I gave it to this guy. He thought he was the bank, and he walked up with all the money. What was his name? Sam Bankman. <laughs> his name was Bankman. He thought he was the bank. He took all your your customer deposits, and he bought houses and mansions in the Bahamas. You didn't see that coming? Next time, don't put it into a man who thinks he's a bank. Sam Bakeman freed. He freed you of all your money. Okay. Money. So, Sam Bakeman freed. By the way, here, here's the craziest thing about it. Yesterday, the New York Times had some sort of uh, meeting or whatever where they were charging. It was, like a, it was like some kind of big event and they had speakers from all over the world. Zelensky. And uh, Netanyahu actually spoke there. If you wanted to attend in person, it was a $2,500 a person event, to attend in person. And they interview Sam Bakeman-Fried, like the guy's a hero. The guy stole $10 billion. It's, it's, It's the weirdest thing. The guy should be in prison. Madoff was in prison. Sam Bankman-Fried stole $10 billion of other people's money. He pledged and he was, it was required not to take customers' assets and use it for things that they were not agreeing to. And he, he did it, including buying mansions, $122 million mansions. And yet, he comes on the New York Times and he has an interview and, and they're cheering for him like he's a hero. It's, it's bizarre. We live in a clown world. Now, for all these reasons, and by the way, this whole summer has been a, a summer of many other figures in the crypto world, or banks in the crypto world, that have all gone bust, just to name a few. Celsius, BlockFi, Three Hours Capital, Okay, um, Alameda, of course, which was together with FTX, um, I'm missing another big, Voyager, right? Now, these names may not mean anything to you, but if you were in the crypto space, They would mean a lot to you. But they're all gone now. That's because there was a vast mishandling and understanding of what crypto is. Now, I'll just tell you, we're going to talk a little bit about my personal beliefs about crypto. (laughs) And in ten years from now, you'll either be laughing at me, or be like, wow, that rabbi. He was talking about it in 2017. Now it's 2022. I've been speaking about it since 2017, by the way. Now, I really do believe that eventually... Crypto will be an extraordinarily important component of the world because the reality is the whole dollar system, the whole world financial system is so incredibly messed up. Meaning, I, if you actually understand the plumbings of the world financial system, which, if you want to, I can give you books to read. Read the Bitcoin standard for starters, just understand the financial plumbing of the world. Read the fiat standard also. I can give you more books here. I can give you a lot to read if anyone's really, truly interested. The world's plumbing is so messed up. Nobody here, by the way, I, I highly doubt that anybody here understands how money is created. Most people think it has something to do with the Federal Reserve or the Treasury. Does anybody think that? What do you think? No. If you borrow $10 million from the bank, the bank creates it out of thin air. They have to have a reserve requirement somewhere around 4%. That so means that if they have $4 million on deposit, they can lend out $96 million more. And they just create a loan. And they give you $10 million, and then they put $10 million on their balance sheet as an as they asset, the 10 million they lent you, that's an asset of 10 million dollars, even though you might not end up paying it back. And then there's a 10 million dollar liability that they now owe that to the company that they, that they, that they created on their balance sheet. I mean it's literally t- the way money is created, just even look into this. Look into this. How is money created? And if you think of if it's the Federal Reserve, there are small creators of capital compared to the banking system, which has basically been allowed to create almost unlimited amount of funds. Without having that, if anybody here thinks when you go to the bank and you ask for a loan, they give you a loan from other monies that other people have entrusted with them, that's not at all what's happening. I, I, there's so much going on. I don't want to talk, because I, I could talk all day about this. We could have no class. We just said, we'll talk crypto. <laughs> the point is, so how do I look, if you're wondering, how do I look at the world right now? Right? The crypto world, obviously Bitcoin is all the way down. Right, Bitcoin is right now at 17,000. Right? Bitcoin was at 69,000 in November of last year. Now, mind you, Bitcoin was at $0 12 years ago, right? And it's obviously come a long way. And it, it's like, in my mind, I see it. It's like the, the Internet. The Internet went through the early, you guys remember the dot-com era, right? And there was all these people saying, nobody's ever going to buy clothing on the Internet. What kind of stupidity is that? You've got to try it on. Meanwhile, headlines come out. J. Crew moving to online sales only. You know, like <laughs> Eddie Bauer only online, right? It's like unbelievable, right? It's so like, we remember a time. So, in the beginning of the internet, there was a huge boom. There was a lot of hype, a lot of discussion, and everyone, all the dot com stocks, pets.com, all the dot com stocks went crazy. A lot of people lost a lot of money in the dot com boom and bust. If You guys, you guys remember that? You, guys, you all remember that, of course. And then what happened? Then you have what's called the internet winter. People weren't so interested in investing so much anymore, but there were a lot of people who had learned about what the internet could be and they got fired up and they started working and working and working. And you didn't see much of them. They were behind the scenes. But they were creating the engines that is now running our entire world. Our entire world runs on the internet right now. Like literally, our entire world runs on the internet right now. The internet wasn't around. I mean, before the '90s, it wasn't around. Period, right? So, in our lifetime, think about this. Think about this craziness. In our lifetime, we've seen already in the course of 30 years, the entire world transform itself. And we saw it go into a heady rush in the beginning, and then get shut down really, really hard. And it went into it went into winter, internet winter. And then during that winter time is when people are building. The building in the in the winter is beneath the surface. You plant those seeds, and way beneath the surface, those seeds are starting to germinate to and start to, you know, start to build up. And then eventually it comes out blooming and blooming. My personal belief is that it's the same thing with crypto. Crypto, I believe, the payment system, the network, the security of it, the finality of it, the fact that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Now again, all these other coins and tokens, and that's a lot of drivel. I mean, there will be some use cases for blockchain that are not related necessarily to actual Bitcoin, but the reality is I'm talking about more. I'm talking about the, the whole Bitcoin infrastructure and what it's going to provide for the world. It started, it blew up, it became huge. People were putting money. All you have to say is that you're now a crypto company. I mean, there was a time literally where your stock would get a, a 40% boost by if you just saying if you change your name from you know um, payless shoes. Dot .com to PaylessShoes.crypto, your stock would have a 20 percent bu- bump, you know what I'm saying? Uh, putting out uh, Payless shoes NFTs. Boom, 20 percent boost. Which by the way, also has to do with the fact that the money system is so corrupt. Like, think about that. The fact that we, just, we have so much more money sloshing around the system today than we had 20 years ago. So much more. That fuels all these ridiculous purchases of NFTs and stocks going to $3 trillion valuation and so on and so forth. There's no reason why Apple, as a company, was valued at $3 trillion when they weren't making any more than they were making when they were at $1 trillion, right? There was absolutely no, it means $2 trillion, $2 trillion, $2 trillion got added to the valuation of Apple even though Apple was not making any more money. Is that not clown money? Everyone's like, well, where's all, where's, I don't understand crypto. Where's it all coming from? Do you understand Apple stock? How did Apple stock go from being valued at one trillion, which was already crazy, to being valued three trillion dollars, even though it was roughly making the same amount per quarter? Do you understand Apple.count, the stock? I, I, if you understand that, we should have a talk also. In any case, ladies and gentlemen, What's going In my personal belief, (laughs) and again, in 10 years from now, you'll either come back and say you were right or you were wrong, we are right now in crypto winter. The internet started, got really, really blown up in the early, late 90s, and everything was worth, you know, Pets.com and Diapers.com and all that was worth, you know, all this money, and then everything crashed. But during the winter, in the early 2000s, they were building and building and building, and Amazon.com, which started off as a little bookstore was building and building and building and Facebook and Google and all these things were building and building and building. Companies that weren't around that have now overtaken Airbnb, Uber, companies that have overtaken the system of how we do business, how we travel, Kayak and Hotels.com, the whole industry of how you go on vacation, how you live, how you apply for a mortgage, how you pay for a mortgage, everything is now on the internet. That was all being done during, crypto, during internet winter. And I believe it's the same thing with crypto. We went through a, a whole heady rush. Bitcoin went all the way up to $69,000. Then it crashed back down. And then we had when it crashed back down, it took with it all this other stuff. and Now things are still washing out of the system. But that's good. Let it sit beneath the system. Let it sit beneath the surface for a while. And let's build. Let's build payment networks. Do you know how many hundreds of billions of dollars are being sent in remittances every year to Latin American countries by people who work here in America. They work in America. They're working, you've seen them working everywhere. And they're sending hundreds and hundreds of billions, probably trillions of dollars back in remittances to Honduras and El Salvador and Nicaragua. And they're paying a fortune to Western Union. And Walmart and other places that do these money transfers. With the Lightning Network, which is a level two on top of the crypto, I'm not going to get into it, but the Lightning Network, which is a level two on the Bitcoin system, you could send money from here to Nicaragua, it will get there in literally seconds, and it will cost you a penny or two to send 20 $30. It's going to overtake the system. But it needs to build right now. It needs to build, and it can't be building while it's in a time of hype and all this money coming in and the celebrities, the Sam Bankman frees and all those kind of... It, not when, it can't grow like that. It needs to grow in a winter and now we're in winter. Yaakov Avinu had to become Yaakov Avinu. He had to become this incredible giant of a, of, a, of a patriarch. He couldn't do it while he's walking around as, as a single guy loaded with billions in cash doesn't work well have you ever seen a single guy at the age of you know, a, a young single guy with billions of dollars develop into a healthy individual I haven't he had to go through this he had to go through this poverty he had to be robbed of all his wealth do you think he would have gone to yeshiva I don't know no, seriously. If he, if he was, if he had left his parents' house with, you know, a couple, you know, let's just let's go, let's go easy. A couple, a couple, you know, five million dollars. You got to go invested, and you got to go buy properties. You got to start managing properties. He's gonna go to yeshiva. He's got time for yeshiva. I've got an empire to take care of. I'm gonna be able to get myself the best girl because I'm busy making a buck. I met a guy I was in China. I met a Hasidic dude. He was probably about. Maybe about 26, 27. Really smart kid. Came from a poor family. A lot of children. He said he got on a plane, and he said, "I'm not coming back to America until I make my first million. Right? I want to get a good woman. I got. A, I want to get a good wife. I want to have a good prospects. You know. Uh, you know. I don't have. I'm not a particularly rabbinical guy. You know. I'm not a big student or anything. I actually stayed in this guy's apartment in uh, on Shabbos in in Shanghai. So I'm not going back to America until I make my first million. Guess what? By the time I stayed in his apartment, he was way past his first million. Still hadn't gone back to America. He was making big money in Shanghai over there. Big money. Sometimes what you hope to build doesn't happen when, you've got all, when the money's coming in. Yaakov Vinu, flushed with all this cash. He left his parents' house. They gave him here, just take five million. This way he'll give himself a nice girl. Okay, I've got to buy some property there. Boom. No. Eliphaz comes, robs him of all his money. And that's how he ends up in Yeshiva for 14 years. The best thing that ever happened to him. Rev. Eliezer Menachem Shach, leader of Lithuanian Jewry, until he passed away at the age of 100 plus, was learning in Slutsk, in a yeshiva, a famous yeshiva in Slutsk, in Lithuania, under the leadership of Rav Iser Zalman Meltzer. In, the early 19, in, in, in late 1914, I'm sorry, World War I breaks out. And the yeshiva disbands. They say, it's too dangerous, go home. Young Eliezer Menachem Shach, 17 years old, travels home to his hometown of Vabulnik, You know Vabulnik, yes? (laughs) He travels home to Vabulnik, Lithuania. And he gets there, and guess what? He comes home, knocks on the door, Mama, Tata. Mama, Tata are gone. They ran already. The war broke out. The whole place was in chaos. Where is he going to go? He's got no yeshiva, he's got no parents, he's got no family. He decides, you know what? I know where there's a building that has Svarim, holy books. He gets on the train, he goes back to Slutsk. Goes back to the empty yeshiva building. And starts learning, sitting alone, all day. There's no yeshiva there. There's just him. Maybe they have shachris in the morning, evening services, the synagogue, whatever. There's there's an aron kodesh. There's there's some prayers there, but the whole day sitting by himself and learning, all year round in the heat, in the cold. At night he would lie down on the bench. With a pile of sticks as his pillows. What would he eat? So sometimes people would come to Shul in the morning and they'd have like a little breakfast in Shul before they went to work. He would take whatever scraps they left behind. That was his food. The crust, the scraps, the the bagels, whatever was left behind. And they didn't leave behind much. Once in a while, a family would invite him to a meal... And he was very reluctant because he was afraid of eating people's food that they didn't have. That he felt like they didn't have enough, there's a halacha called Sauda she'enam aspekas You're not supposed to eat a meal when there's not enough for the owners. So he was very concerned about that. But on Shabbos, he would let himself get invited out from time to time to a meal. After a while, after a year or two, one of the, there was a righteous woman in the city, and she noticed that this poor boy is sitting and starving away. So she used to bring him soup and bread. His shoes were too small; it just stayed that way. Pinch, pinch his feet a little bit, okay. What can you do? His pants tore. He had nothing to fix it with. He only owned one shirt. He used to wash it every Friday after, afternoon on the roof of the yeshiva, and then he would take his jacket and he would cover up his body so he could learn while it was drying. Eventually, a few years in, somebody in the community got a package from their relative in America who sent a few old shirts. They didn't fit him, so they gave them to, Sh- to to his young bacher. The winters were the worst. There was a fireplace in the building, but at night all the other town beggars would crowd around it. He, 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 didn't, he didn't have the heart to fight for a good space near the, the hearth, so he would lie on a bench in the freezing cold with nothing to cover him, and it would, it would keep him up at night. He couldn't. It actually affected his learning because he would be so tired because he couldn't sleep at night because it was so freezing cold. Somebody saw him and took pity on him. Eventually and gave him an old coat, and he used to cover himself with an old coat, he was so appreciative. By the way, when that man died, that man lived in Israel, Rav Shach, who was an old man already, walked in the boiling hot sun, it was the middle of the summer in Israel, in the boiling hot sun, Rav Shach, as an old man, walked his funeral all the way to the cemetery to show Hakar Satov, to show respect and appreciation, this man gave me the coat that I wore when I was in yeshiva there. This is Rav Eliezer Man Shach's life with a 17-year-old, 18-year-old boy. The, the, the poverty, the deprivation, unimaginable. Yet, he would say in later in life, those were the best, those were the sweetest years of my life. He wrote a book called the Avi Ezri, and he starts off and he says, Ma'ashiv la Hashem kol takbuloi How can I repay Hashem all this kindness He has done for me? And he writes about this particular period of time. That's what he writes when he thinks about this time. Imagine the boy sitting with no clothing, freezing cold, no food, starving, studying by himself for hours and hours, for years and years, until the yeshiva came back. And he writes about this, Ma la'ashem, kol tak mulay lai. how could I repay Hashem for all the kindness that he gave me? And he writes in there, in his introduction, he writes a person's primary purpose is to raise himself above anything that can disturb him from what he's supposed to do. Your goal is to raise above all of it. To raise above the pain. To raise above the suffering. Not to have a life that has no suffering, but to raise yourself above it. Out of his suffering he will experience relief. He will have peace of mind and clarity of thought. The two stories are linked because one leads to the other. Because Yaakov had nothing, he was able to go to yeshiva and study for 14 years. If he had a whole massive wealth and all this money he would be, he'd be busy taking care of his wealth but he had no money he went to learn with great deprivation Then didn't put his head down, he didn't go to bed he didn't go to the dorms once for 14 years he sat and studied Torah and he became Yaakov Avinu he became the man, the Ish Emes the man of truth, the man of the Torah another story There is a dynasty out there called the Brisker dynasty. It's a great, great dynasty of rabbinical families called the Salveitchik family. They go back to the original first famous rabbi who is known as the Beis Halevi, Yosef Dov Salveitchik. He was born in 1820 in the Minsk area of Russian Empire. He died in the year 1892 in Brest-Litovsk, Brest also known as Brisk. His father, who actually came from a rabbinical family, was not a rabbi. His father was actually a very wealthy businessman. He was very kind. He was very charitable. He gave money to the poor. He invited everybody into his home. And yet, he lost all of his money. And he wasn't sure, what, what did I do wrong? Why did I lose my money? So he went to the Besden in town, and he said, please figure this out. So they actually put together a commission. We're going to, we'll try to figure out why you lost your money. They went to his creditors. Did he pay you on time? Did he pay on, you know, he went to his employees. Everyone had nothing to say. They went to the poor people in town. Did he treat you guys properly? Did he invite you in nicely? Everyone only had good things to say. So they couldn't understand why did he lose all his money. They came back and it was, we don't know. But in the meantime, he had no money. He had nothing, no business to do. So what did he do? He started going to show and learning. And lo and behold, he discovered that he loved to learn Torah. When he had a big business, he was too busy. He paid for Torah study, but he didn't learn himself. But now he's got all this time, he starts learning, and he feels so bad. I wish I would have known this earlier, how much the Torah is so beautiful and so delicious. So he didn't get it for himself, but he started teaching his son a lot. And his son became, Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik, the beginner of a dynasty of Torah scholars that to this day is from the pillars of the Torah world. How did that happen? Because he lost his money. Because the lifas came and robbed him of his money, he ended up spending time in Bes Madrash and became the, the person he was supposed to become. One more story. Rabbi Elio Desler, who we said earlier, we told the story about how he wrote the book, the, the Pamphlet of Kindness. He was born in 1892 in Gomel, which today is in Belarus, of course. But also, it used to be part of Ukraine, of course, and also used to be part of Poland, of course, and also used to be part of Russia, of course, and also used to be part of Lithuania, of course, because that's the way the cities used to go over there. What country are you in? I don't know. Don't get, don't get personal over here. You know what I'm saying? We're keeping this out of politics, right? Now, his father, he became one of the greatest leaders of the Muster movement of the 20th century. He ended up being the mashkiach in the yeshiva called Panovich, which was like the, the biggest yeshiva in Israel for a long time. He was known as a great, 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 great rabbi. His story is fascinating. His father, Rev. Ruven Dov Dessler, was a disciple of one of the leaders of the Mussar movement. Someone named Rev. Simcha Zissel Ziv, known as the Altar of Kelm. But, whatever it was, his father got married, had a bunch of children, including Elio. He died, his mother died, and the father got remarried. His father became a very successful timber merchant. He had a massive logging operation, and he was very, very wealthy. Young Elio Dessler was taught by private tutors, and he, at the age of 13 he went on to become one of the youngest students at the Yeshiva of Kelm. The Yeshiva of Kelm, this is a fascinating thing that I did not know about until recently, the yeshiva of Kelm also had made sure you learned a secular job, like uh, you learned your yeshiva, but you also had some sort of secular education parallel to it, which was very unlike the other yeshivas. In Kelm, he was very diligent. He got a smicha from his uncle, Chaim Moiser Grzezinski, who ended up being one of the greatest rabbis of the generation. But in 1920, Rabbi Elio Dessler married a woman named Bluma, who was a granddaughter of the altar of Kelm, that rabbi from the great yeshiva. But he was offered a rabbinical position as a judge in the city of Vilna and he turned it down to join his father in business. Remember, his father had a very successful timber operation. What happened? The timber operation during the, uh, the Russian Revolution his father saw the writing on the wall his father sold the business for millions and millions of dollars, whatever it would be called today. You know, it was rubles in those days, but I'm saying <laughs> millions and millions of rubles, but whatever the equivalent, a lot, a lot of money, for a fortune of money. And he said to his family, We got to get out of here. Things are not going well here in Russia. Let's get out of Dodge. <laughs> they are leaving Russia with two suitcases filled with money. I'm talking about legit, like the mob films. You know, you open up the suitcase. There it is. Piles and piles of cash. With neat rubber bands. You know what I'm saying? They're leaving the country with suitcases full of money. And as they're very close to the border, the Bolsheviks win. The Red Forces, the Communist Forces, beat the Tsar's army, the White Army. And they announce that they're taking over Russia. And the first thing they do when they take over is they say all the old currency is worthless. That czarist money, we're communists now, we're going to redistribute the wealth. All that old money is worthless. Rebellion, Dussler's father, is walking around with two suitcases filled with recyclable paper. Nothing. It's worth zero dollars. Now, by the way, had he converted it to Bitcoin... (laughs) anyway, ladies and gentlemen what ended up happening to Elio Desler? he ended up moving with his father to England, his father had some medical operations, he ended up becoming a rabbi in London and then he became a rabbi in Gateshead and then he moved to Israel and became a rabbi in Panovich imagine if his father still had a successful timber operation he would probably be a very devout businessman but Elifaz came and stole all his money and he spent the rest of his life studying Torah the Gemara tells us, "Hizaru mibne aniyem shemehem teitzay Torah." The Gemara in Nedarim says, "Be very careful about the wealthy, for from them will come Torah." And what does this mean for us? Should we then throw away all our money? No, not yet. But if you do, I know who you can give it to: Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> <laughs> but, ladies and gentlemen, what this means for us is that I don't. The money is just an example. In our lives, we go through periods of great success, and we go through periods of challenge. Recognize that those periods of challenge, that's your winter. And that's where the growth... And by the way, why did the Torah not mention it? Because the growth of a winter happens beneath the surface. That's how it always works. If you're going through a period in your life of great challenge or difficulty, if you know people going through great challenge and great difficulty, that is where you can grow. That's where you can germinate. It's got to be beneath the surface. It's not even seen. The verses don't even describe it. It's beneath. It's crypto-winter. It's labi-burnum-winter. It's a difficult time in my life. I don't have what I'm used to having. Go underground. Build. As Rabbi Eliezer man said, it's when you can learn not to be disrupted by the suffering or challenges in your life and you still stick on point. That's when you achieve clarity of purpose, peacefulness of mind. That's when you have the best years of your life. When you're able to overcome your challenges and still grow and become a better person. May we all have the energy to experience that in our lives. To experience the ability to build through a winter. To build through suffering. To build through times that are beneath the surface. When we're not feeling rich. When we're feeling impoverished. When we're feeling like we've been stripped of what we had and what we used to, what were used to. Whatever it may be. May we experience the ability to grow through that. And that comes, brings out The greatest crops. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.